All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Public Speakers Podcast. I'm here today with my guest, Robert Kennedy III, who I found on LinkedIn um, <clears throat> just by looking through a bunch of his content. And I came across him and I was like, oh, this is dope. This guy should be on the podcast. And now we connected and he's on the podcast. So we're going to get into a bunch of stuff today in terms about communication, presentation skills, public speaking. He's going to give us all of his little tips and valuable stuff for free. But before we get into that, Robert, who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing right now in this industry? And let everyone know kind of how you got started in this. Man, that's a lot of stuff for one question, bro. <laughs> um, yeah. So I am originally born on the island of Jamaica. I left there when I was a kid. And then I grew up in New York City. After that, I grew up in the Bronx, man. Boogie down. Yes. So that's 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 my background. Uh, I'm a peak. My dad was a pastor, so we traveled around quite a bit. So I lived in Montreal, Canada as well. I also lived in Oshawa, Ontario, near Toronto for a while. I, I went to school in the state of Massachusetts, and so I lived there for a little bit. And then now I live in Maryland. And yeah, so I'm married, have a few kids, three, and they're, they're, they're keeping me busy. Man. So so that's kind of my world, my, my background and my world. As far as public speaking or what got me into where I am right now, man, it was, it was a journey. I don't know that there was one moment that said, oh, yeah, this is it. You should go that direction. Right. It was it was kind of a it, life just morphed, man. I I. I was in the mental health industry for a couple of years after I got out of college. And that prepared me really great for my next job as a seventh grade teacher. How about that? Uh, there we go. All right. Honestly, <laughs> teachers are public speakers, if we want to be honest. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the funny thing is I was, I was quiet as a kid. I was quiet. I, I wasn't somebody who was out front a lot. Well, that's not totally true. I was out front because I had to be. I was a pastor's kid. So, you know, we kind of we always ended up on stage somehow, but I wasn't the type that was gregarious. I wasn't outgoing and needed to be the center of attention. It, you know, I was I was to myself. I would I'd rather be in my room building trains, man, rather than doing some of the other stuff. So, you know, I ended up teaching. I taught for 10 years. And after teaching, I moved into the world of online learning, started to develop uh, training for organizations. And from there, companies started to say, instead of building the training for us, can you teach us how to do it? And so I started training them and that morphed from online learning training to communication training and then involved some leadership in that. So now I've kind of merged the two and I'm at the intersection of leadership and communication. So after you uh, were done with teaching and you started creating these online learning platforms was this because you recognized that like online learning started becoming a, a really big industry like what sort of made you want to create training programs and distribute them through uh the internet man i have no idea i was i i needed i needed money at the time i needed i needed a job i needed to be able to take care of my family and my master's degree was in instructional technology and i didn't really understand it but there was some instructional design background there and I knew that I I liked online stuff. I actually had two businesses while I was teaching. Right. So my first one was a an online gospel music promotions uh, portal, uh -huh. and then 
beside that, I, I did, I set up a web development company. Right. <laughs> so we were building websites for independent artists. And so through that, there was, you know, the technical piece of it. And so I was always looking, man, how can I do something and stay at home? I don't want to run around. Right. So finding the merger of my instructional design or instructional skills, loving the, the web development end of things and then being involved, you know, PowerPoint slides and all of that, that kind of morphed into, oh, my gosh, there's this thing that I can do that companies need. OK, cool. So that's where that started. And, and how did you get just more organizations to want you to train them? Did you just give it to one and then it kept spreading on and on when they found that the training was really good? Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. It's you, you give it to one and, you know, I, you you have conversations with people. You, you go to networking events. You go to you put yourself in situations where people say, hey, what are you up to in the world? Right. And the introvert in me doesn't always like that. And tries to stay far away from it, but somehow I always ended up in a in a situation where I had to share that information, or people saw me doing something and they said, "Oh, can you come do that for us?" Right, right. Interesting. So, in the past five minutes, we've learned that you are a pastor's son. We've yep. Learned that you've been to a lot of different places around the world, yep. uh, and we also learned that you're an introvert. I personally love the process of introspection. I think the yeah. ability to go deep into one story and figure out and dissect all the experiences that happened and find a way to communicate how those experiences relate to where we are in today's world is just such a valuable thing. It's something that people don't do. And I think it's kind of one of the keys to happiness is trying to figure out why you're here. What, like, How can you yeah. self-actualize yourself? So given you're a pastor's son, pastors do a lot of public speaking, and yep. you have all these diverse perspectives of moving from place to place. Do you think any of that contributed to the fact uh, about why you're so good at the intersection of leadership and communication? Because you have so many places you've been to, so many cultures you've experienced, and so much DNA of speaking that's kind of in you from being a pastor's son? Absolutely. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, it's an advantage for me because I am not... I don't have the experience of being the CEO of a large corporation, right? Right. I've been a director of organizations or I've been in management leadership positions. Uh, I have my own company. I've led for, I've started four companies right? and I have those experiences, but I, you know, I haven't had the experience of leading a multi-million or billion dollar enterprise. Right. So in speaking to leaders, the experiences that I pull from, are the people experiences, how I've seen leaders work, how what I've seen be successful, what I have done and what I have interpreted from things and situations that have worked well in, in leadership. And then as you see those situations, you then have to translate that to people. You've then got to motivate them and mobilize them to take action on the things that you're sharing, right? And so, how, how do you do that? Okay, I've got to be influential. I've got to be a confident, compelling, convicting speaker, person, credible speaker, so that they can say, oh my gosh, yeah, I need to do that. Not because he told me, but because I see it and I see myself inside of it. That, that's kind of interesting to me. Like when you talk to leaders and you're communicating with them and you have to sell them on the idea of you need communication skills in order to uh, progress the trajectory of your career and your professional development, it's kind of weird that like a leader would need coaching on that, right? Like they don't know that that's already intrinsic to the aspect of 
building something and being better at what they do. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it, it, it's like a lot of other things. Relationships are that way, period. Right. It's not just being a leader. It's, it's interactions with human beings. And a lot of times we take for granted certain things because we feel like we can do it already. Yeah. Okay. I know how to walk already, so I don't need to work on how, how I enter a room or how I, my, my gate in any way. I know how to talk already, so why do I need to work on talking to other people, <laughs> right? So those are the things we take for granted until we recognize some of the simple things that breakdowns in communication can cause, or actually some of the explosive things that breakdowns in communication can cause. Lose a lot of right? money off bad communication. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll actually share a quick story. This is a historical story as sharing some of my communication trainings. Yeah. In 1944, there was a Japanese general who was asked about whether or not, what were his plans for surrendering or was he going to surrender to the Allies? Right. And he answered with this one word. He said, mokusatsu. Now, mokusatsu is a Japanese word and it has several meanings or interpretations, one of which is uh, no, like, no comment. And then there's another interpretation which means I choose to remain silent, but with contempt. And if I were to interpret that to today's lingo, that's like saying, whatever, bro. <laughs> right? So which interpretation do you think the media took back to the Allied side or the United States? Right. It was the whatever, bro one. And that wasn't really what he meant. He just meant, you got a question. I don't have an answer for it. So no comment. Right. Okay. And because of that interpretation, nine days later, Hiroshima and Nagasaki happened. Oh. Right. So, so interpretations and miscommunications can sometimes lead to consequences or things that we don't expect. We don't take it. We don't take it as importantly as we should. Now, now you you spend time in the public school system or the private school system? Public. Public. And what were you teaching? Science, physics, and biology. Physics and biology. So you were firsthand in the public school administration system. One of the things I'm confused of, and I'm actually happy to be on this topic because I haven't been able to talk about it, is why don't schools effectively teach better communication? Like, why isn't there an elective that's like communication strategies? Given we're social creatures and everything we do comes down to communication, we're not like robots, right? We don't communicate through code. Why isn't school putting a heavy emphasis on communication and not some of the other stuff that's not as useful? Money. It comes down to money. I mean, and not money because we have or don't have it. It's money as in what we think is important. And the things that we think are important are the things that are data driven, the things that are technical, the things that will create immediate return and immediate money for us. As a matter of fact, we've got this misnomer in the corporate space where we say that things that skills that you can do coding, uh, skills that you can do like, um, you know, number crunching, whatever it is, all of those are hard skills and things like communication soft. are soft skills. That's right? such bullshit. It's not even like, it's unbelievable yeah. that they think communication is soft. Right. Right. And so, you know, when I, when I've spoken to people about it in the past, they, in the past, they say, Oh no, it's not a, you know, it's not, it's not meant to be negative. I said, listen, I don't know other than cake. If, if you can think about anything else in your life that you want to be soft. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> what 
cake and your bed. Maybe, maybe not even the bed all the time. I, I don't want my bed too soft. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> right? But we think about the, the subtle messages that are sent by what we name or call or speak about, how we speak about certain things. And that subtle message is communication is a soft skill. It's not something that we can teach and quantify. And if we can teach and quantify it, how do we then get a return and money right. from that? immediately and and will we get funded right if we focus on that thing that makes sense yeah whenever there's an industry or a market behind something then we get to see the actual resources and dollars put forth to fund yeah. that. It, it makes sense because my school had a, a speech and debate team um and that yeah. was the, the most transformative experience of my life it is the reason why i am who i am today um and it like I literally was able to travel to a different state every other weekend my senior year and every other kid in my school because the district paid for it. I didn't have to pay for it. I was lucky enough to have the district fund everything. They could have right. had that position. They could have been in my shoes, but everyone was like, yeah, the debate team is nerdy, so we're just not doing debate. And it's like, <laughs> it's like we learn so much about critical thinking and analyzing and public speaking and communication and getting people to believe. Because what I was doing is, you know, I was talking to a professor one day and I was like, um, I was like, I, I, he was like, have you had any sales experience? And I was like, no, I haven't gone like door to door and I sold Verizon chips. Like I haven't done that. He's like, that's not the only sales experience. I'm like, what else is there? He's like, what'd you do in high school? I was like, I did debate. He was like, what'd you do? Right. I was like, I went to a tournament every year and I got judges to vote for me. He's like, Amit, you've been selling stories your whole life. You've been convincing other people to believe in what you want and the commodity or the currency that was your money was their ballot, which helped you go farther in the tournament. And that was such an essential thing. And the, and the reason this is relevant is because the district always threatened to get rid of funding for a debate because they didn't see the ROI on it other than us winning a couple tournaments. And it's just so interesting that schools don't take the time to actually put the emphasis on some of those things that are, that are really relevant to our lives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Warren Buffett, I don't know if you've heard this before, but Warren heard. Buffett was teaching a, a or speaking to a business class at Columbia University back in 2009. And he told them, he said, listen, you can improve the value of your entire career by more than 50% just by learning that skill of public speaking. Right, right. Right. He actually offered to pay them more than $100,000 if they would take him up on it. I don't know how many did or not. But I mean, this has got, this is, he's what, maybe the, is he the third richest man in the world yeah. at this point? Yeah. And he says the most critical skill for his career wasn't his ability to to evaluate stock markets or see trends right. it was public speaking so much so that he recognized during his career that he didn't have this skill or he was not doing well in it. and and he he looked he got dale carnegie courses to do this and yeah. so you know look at people who are doing what you want to do and find out what are some of the skills, some of the things, some of the values that they hold important. And, you know, chances are public speaking and communication is, is one of them. Go after it. Yeah. And, and I think that doesn't mean that like public speaking and communication should be your only skill. I think, yes, you should know something about the industry that you're in, but it's just a question of like, if you can code stuff, are you just going to be locked in a room coding stuff? And you could do that for Facebook. You'd be locked in a room yeah. making 500,000 coding stuff. But like to get yep. to the next level, you have to be able to talk about what you're coding and you have to be able to communicate that in a way that is captivating for people's attention. And given social media, there are so many people trying to captivate our attention. If you're not able to stand out and get your message across, it's very hard to start building anything outside of yep. your technical knowledge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 
All right, so let's get into a deeper question. How do people get over the fear of public speaking? <laughs> so that is a loaded question as well. And people want this cut and dry answer. They want to be able to flick a switch yep. and turn it off and say, okay, good. I am no longer scared of public speaking. I can, I'm going to speak in front of 200,000 people. I'll be great. Yep. And it just doesn't work that way. There are things that you can do to lessen the fear. There are things that you can do to help you navigate each speaking moment. Right. However, I mean, I would say officially, officially I've been speaking for about four and a half years. If I include my teaching and my training careers before that, I've probably been speaking close to 20 years. And I actually had to speak at an event, at an event last night. And even before going up to speak, I still had the, the, the butterflies. Right. And one of the things that I tell my public co speaking coaching clients is that my job with you is not to help you get rid of the butterflies. It's to help them fly in formation. Absolutely. And so what we do is, okay, reframe those nerves into something else. Reframe the story that you're telling yourself about what you're feeling. And is it that I'm scared? Is it that I'm nervous about failing or being criticized? Or is that just my body's warm-up mechanism saying, okay, dude, let's do this. We're ready to go. What's the story that I'm telling myself? So yeah, so reframing is, is one thing. Breathing, breathing deep, diaphragmatic breathing is something that you can do to calm yourself a bit before you go out on stage or before you speak in front of even a small group or it might be one-on-one. -on -one. Right. What are the things that you can do to not focus so much on the fear or what can go wrong, but the result that you want from the conversation? Why do you or think people are getting those butterflies? Some of it is physiological. Right. Our body has response, our body has a fight and flight mechanism. Right. So when we're going into something new or something that we're not sure about, our body chemically responds to it. It prepares us for what's coming. And sometimes that preparation is, dude, run, <laughs> right? And other times it's, okay, this is excitement. And, and chemically, those chemicals are, are the same. Right. It's, just, it's the, they're coming from the same glands. It's the same chemical. It's just the response differs based on the mental input and what we tell ourselves about that thing as well. That makes sense to me. Um, I recently saw an article the other day that was just like uh, it was on Harvard Business Review that public speaking, the fear of public speaking has been ingrained in us couple, from a couple thousand years ago. Because like when we yeah. were hunter gatherers and uh, we were trying to get food and we saw someone looking at us, that would make us like really afraid and that's when the flight or fight thing mechanism would kick in so now when we have thousands of people looking at us and we're like what do they want from me that contributes to the fear um, absolutely one thing i wanted to talk to you about so this is kind of a theory i've been working on um and i want to i want to run it by you see how see how you contextualize it i think it is uh an effective way to get over the fear of public speaking if we think about it philosophically because i think this fear is primarily based in a mindset primarily based in an orientation one has to the world I was lucky enough when I was a child that my mom put me in a lot of situations where I had to fail at public speaking uh, and being in front of an audience in general, even if it wasn't public speaking. And that subliminally got rid of my fear so that when I got older, I was like, I just wasn't afraid of the stage. I was ready to embrace it. But a lot of people don't have those experiences. One of the things I also am passionate about is mortality um, or the fact that there is an inevitable end to our existence. 
Right. And it fascinates me that there is a beginning and there is an end. And we go all our lives really not thinking about the fact that the end is coming up. I mean, we're conscious of it, but we don't wake up every morning, brush our teeth and like, oh, I'm, I'm getting closer to death. Like, it's just it's in the background right. because it seems so abstract and it's so taboo. I think and I, I want to ask you if you think, is there a way to use your mortality or the fact that you are going to die as a way to orient your mind to not be afraid of things like speaking, particularly when communication and speaking is necessary to create fulfillment within those tiny 80 years you have from beginning to end it's kind of like why would you be afraid of communicating who you are and filling your life with purpose and the ability to speak when you know that one day you won't have the ability to do so because you'll be dead yeah that's that is very deep very profound and it is a possibility just to answer your question directly right the issue for human beings is that we are afraid of pain and we're always self-protecting Okay, we might know that there is an end. We might know that something is coming, but on the way, we don't want to be hurt in the process. Yeah. We don't want to walk on the fire on the hot fire coals. We don't want to step on the the, the 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 nail that's upside down or the thumbtack or the pushpin. We don't want to step on that. So we're doing everything in our power to avoid it. Right. Okay, there could be a bed of pushpins, and past that bed of pushpins is a million dollars and you're like listen you can pick up this million dollars if you'll just walk over these thumbtacks and get to that million dollars right right there are some people that would be like okay yeah and they would just kind of run but there's a lot of people that would kind of flinch first and say uh oh my gosh and there would be something in their mind where they think well geez is it, is it worth it i'm like dude it's a freaking million dollars <laughs> right go get it but there's a there's a moment in their mind where there's is it how much how much do I want to endure is and they're thinking about it because there's pain involved. Right. And so there's a big segment of our population. There is a there's something maybe natural because we've been socialized that way in us to avoid pain, no matter what that ultimate reward might be, good or bad. Right. And th there's a level of risk calculation that that uh, one person goes through when they're trying to see if they want to. Uh, step over the the bed of thumbtacks, and and to me, I don't think everyone is risky. I don't think everyone is ambition uh, ambitious, mm -hmm. and I don't think everyone has to be. I think that you know the people who are they they go on that journey and they deal with the suffering and the pain and they get the bigger rewards because they dealt with taking yeah. the risk and the suffering and the pain. But like to me, central towards understanding your mortality is recognizing that if you are going to die, and you are living moments like there's this quote right like it's not the um, it's not the moments of our life. It's the moments that take our, it's not how many breaths we take. It's the moments that take our breaths away. Right. To me, it's like, what is the value of the moments that take your breath away? If you're not able to effectively communicate those moments in interpersonal discussions, when you're hit with the family, when you're with your friends around the campfire or yeah. on a, a massive stage on, on, on when you're speaking to a thousand people, like if you had a beautiful relationship when you were 15 years old and you guys broke up and, and now you're 35, like, Part of the, the beauty of that relationship, whether it was ended and, and whatever happened, is the ability to effectively communicate about it because there will be one day when you die and that won't matter anymore. Like that, that relationship won't have any meaning. In fact, every second as we're going into the future, like did that relationship even happen? Like I have memories that it happened. I have Facebook mm -hmm. pictures that it happened, but it was just in the past. It, it, it just happened. It's not real anymore. The only thing that brings it back to life is my ability to communicate it. So it seems like to me, understanding mortality from the perspective of leaving, leaving and living a fulfilling life 
requires the ability to communicate experiences that have happened in our life. And we're, if we are unable to jump over those thumbtacks and take the yeah. risk, not, not take a risk and start the next Amazon or Facebook, but take a risk just to try to communicate, it seems like we're leaving a, a hell of a lot of fulfillment on the table. Before. You are correct. You are correct. And here's the truth, bro. That's, that's higher order thinking. It's higher order thinking and everybody is not there yet based on how we entered the world and some of the circumstances that surrounded our birth and the years shortly after that. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's some people that they're born into pain. Right. They're born into pain. And so they live their entire lives trying to escape it. Right. And the funny thing about it is that it's not even so much that people don't like pain or that they run away from pain. They just don't like new pain. Yeah. Some people are cool with the pain that they're in and they, and, and because it's what they know and it's what it's, 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 they've, they become numb to certain things around them because it's, it's what they know. I mean, it's like me, I grew up, like I said, in the Bronx, right. And I see certain things, but I've also lived in different places and I have different perspectives and I go into the Bronx and I see certain homes and certain houses. And in my mind, I'm like, why the heck would you live there? Right. Why would you subject yourself and your family to living in that place. And my mind, because I've had different experiences, because I've read different things, because my dad is who he is, because I've had access to certain things, I see and think differently. Right. Rather than somebody who's been in that box. I mean, it, for me, it was hard to believe there are people that grew up in New York that have never been from Brooklyn to the Bronx. They've never left Brooklyn. <laughs> right that's real. That's real. So it's 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 different levels of thinking based on socialization and your exposure right right and, and i think it's important especially when you talk when you talk about bringing up pain like part of mm -hmm. the the sucky aspect of pain um is the pain itself part of the beautiful aspect of pain not saying that the pain is beautiful but the beautiful aspect of it is your ability to talk about how you overcame it or how, or what you felt like when you went through it, right? It's kind of like adversity being the foundation for success. Like the ones who really have achieved a lot, a lot of them, sure, a lot of privilege, a lot of resources, but a lot of them also just went through a ton of shit and like overcame it. And that ton of shit was the motivation to get them to that next level. So I think communicating the nature of your pain and how it relates to your existence is one fundamental aspect of being able to break through how that pain has affected you. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, again, that, that takes... I'll say it this way. It takes a special person. It takes a special mindset yeah. to navigate that. And, and if everybody did it, then it, then it, then it wouldn't be special. And maybe the stories wouldn't be as great <laughs> because I mean, you look at, you look at somebody like Gandhi, right? You look at somebody like Gandhi who went through a bunch of stuff. I mean, when you think about something as simple as food, and going on a food strike and going on a hunger strike in order to make a point or in order to motivate, to create change in a certain section of the world. The majority of people are like, dude, I'm hungry because I haven't eaten for the last two hours. Right. And I cannot imagine going any longer than that because that, that blows their mind. And so to say somebody didn't eat for like a week, two weeks, that's crazy. That that's like mental issue. And wh why would I even put myself in that in, in that situation? And what is it going to accomplish for me? And, and most people are not at the place where they can see that because they're surrounded and they have given in right. 
right. to the pain that that is their current normal. And and it kind of brings up this this whole argument about higher level thinking and what you said about Gandhi. Like, I, there was this girl. I'm really forgetting her name, and I'm I'm sorry I'm forgetting her name. But she she was a race car driver, and I think a couple mm-hmm. months ago, I don't know if you heard about this, but she died because she was trying to get a higher level of speed. So like, I think her level was like 327 miles per hour. So this time she was trying to do 340 miles an hour. So she got onto the open desert. Everything was tracked. Like the record, the keepers were there. She was in her car. She went 340 miles an hour and she crashed. And because it was just so fast and she died. And one, you know, question that I was thinking about philosophically was, was her, did her death, um, was she happy with her death given the fact that she died doing something and trying to achieve and strive for something that was so much more greater than, than what she was going for, right? With Gandhi, it was like, we're trying to get out of this colonial violence, so I'm going to try to make a point. With her, mm-hmm. it's kind of like I'm trying to strive for something greater, and if I die in the process of getting there, it's more meaningful than not trying at all. It's a very interesting thing about the psychology of humans, you know? Oh, yeah, and so, I mean, what you talked about with acknowledging and knowing your mortality, one of the things that um, Brendan Burchard, he's a personal development coach, he says, there's this three statements that you ask at the end of life. Did I live? Did I love? Did I matter? Yeah. Right. And so when people say this, I'm pursuing this thing that I'm passionate about. They're like they're saying that I want to know that I mattered. I want to know that my life outlives me. I want to know that when I'm no longer around, people turn around and say, this is what they were after. This is what they were trying to do. And were they successful at it? Maybe they were, but they didn't give up. Right. You know, and everything that everything great that happens comes with the risk of death. It comes with the risk of failure in some ways, right? And so, as you said, mortality, people are scared of the mortality piece of it. They they don't want the pain that's, and it's kind of crazy when you think about it, dude, if you're dead, you're not feeling pain, (laughs) right? Right? It's kind of like, what what was it like before you were alive? Right. Like, I don't know. Right. It's like, yeah, it's going to be like when you die. <laughs> now, you could believe in heaven. You See, my whole thing about the religion aspect of it is like you could believe in, in the heaven or the hell or the afterlife, whatever it is. At the right. end of the day, it is a belief. And yeah. it could be right. It could be wrong. But this, the here and now, the me being conscious, unless this is a, a big ass simulation, which it could also be, this right. is what is real. We can we can we understand it to be real. Now, the belief is the belief, the reality is the reality. To me, I like to take a perspective on life, which is that maybe something's happening after, but if I put all my eggs in that basket and this was the only real thing, like, damn, I missed out, right? So it's a balance of understanding your mortality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and what what is it that you want? I mean, and and I like the belief aspect of things because if you believe there's something next and you're like, listen, I'm not going to half-step this. I'm going to put all my eggs in that basket and and I'm going to live my entire life believing that and I'm going to go for that because that brings meaning to my life. Right. And that is a different sense of purpose. Yep. Yep. All right. We're going to get down from higher level thinking. Fact. (laughs) Some of the the stuff this podcast is supposed to be about. But no, I think this is good. This is like really, really good shit we're talking about. Um, Body movement, hand gestures, eye contact, that stuff on stage. What is your sort of I guess general advice, and maybe you can go a little bit deeper if you want, for someone who's giving a keynote presentation, who's trying to connect with the audience, who's trying to be authentic through the use of their body, is there any specific tips that they can utilize to be a more uh, productive and engaging speaker? 
Wow. And there are some people who will say, yes, you absolutely must do this thing and this thing and this thing. And I am more of the belief it differs from person to person. Yeah. It really depends on your personality because the ultimate goal of a presenter, of a speaker is to connect, is to connect with the audience. And in order to connect with them, they've got to know a little bit about the audience. They've got to know who they are, what they like, what they care about. What they what is what concerns them? Right. What they what they hope to accomplish and achieve? They've got to have some sense of those things in order to connect. And then once you understand that, yeah, then your body language kind of supplements that. Right. You know, I'm a big believer in energy, right? And I believe that energy kind of wins out over over content, right? Content's important. But if the content is delivered with low, weak, or non-existent energy, then that negates the content, yeah. right? Yeah. But if I have energy, if I bring energy, or if I energize the room in a certain way, then it gives me a little bit more time and more, more leeway with people to then give some content. And maybe I can give less content because I connected with them emotionally right. and they felt an experience while they were in the space with me. Now, the energy comes from the emotional connection. And my question is, does the emotional connection come from the content being delivered authentically, or is there actually some tips of how people can like use their voice to generate energy in the room? How do we get the energy so that we can get to the eventual presentation that blows them away? Yeah, so that, and again, that that is dependent upon the audience, that's dependent upon the content. And I gotta determine early on, what is it, how do I want the audience to feel? Right. So if I want them to be reflective, if the content that I have is about the meaning of life. It, it, if it's about something that I really want them to begin thinking deeply about, do I come in and rah, 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 and blow them away? Or do I take them inside their mind? So one of the things that I love to start with, I don't like to start with, hey, good morning, my name's Robert. Yeah, yeah. I love to start with a, a strong statement or a question that takes the attention off of me and allows the audience to go back into the Rolodex or back into their mind, their mental imagery and create a movie. So I might start off with, imagine a world where you could wake up every day and roll around in a bucket of Reese's Pieces, <laughs> right? So that? I'm saying, right, I'm saying something crazy. And so as I'm saying that, they're thinking about, this is video playing in their head. Or I'm asking them a question. What if you could, or have you ever done this? Right. And so now they're, they're listening to me, but they're also thinking that it's that the natural human response to question is to answer. Right. 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 And so they're, they're, they're thinking in their head, wait a minute, have I done this? Or actually, yeah, what would that be like? And they're creating this thing in their head. And so that immediately is creating a connection and the way that I deliver that, if I deliver that, hey, what what would it be like if there, you know, you've got to deliver it with a question. Right. What would it be like if, you know, and so all of that put together, what do you want to create? What experience do you want to create? What video do you want them to see? Right. Right. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And what you're talking about really is in the beginning of a presentation, how to hook your audience and how to be interactive yeah. and how to give them a scenario to visualize versus just saying, hello, I'm here to talk about, but like immediately put them in, in the center of the universe you want to put them in. And the way yeah. you kind of just did that dichotomy of, of just like 
imagine a scenario versus like imagine a scenario do you think yeah. the difference between a and b that i just did and that you just did yeah. is that coachable absolutely absolutely i know it's coachable because i just did it last week <laughs> right so public speaking coaching is one of the things that i do and i actually was coaching a, a client from a major co uh, telecommunications company uh one of the executives there and she was getting ready for an interview or it was over the phone actually it was like a town hall meeting virtual yeah. and she read her speech to me she read what she was going to say to introduce herself to the audience and we kind of broke that down i recorded her on camera on my phone and then when i recorded her and then played it back on my computer she looked and she was like oh my god is that how i look and sound i said yeah i didn't i didn't i, I didn't photoshop it i didn't i didn't edit it <laughs> This, this is you and this is what people see. So what is it that you want them to see? What is the, what is it that you want them to feel when you share with them? And she's, she says, yeah, I want them to feel excited. I want them to feel like I care about them. I want them to feel literally like I'm virtually hugging them. Okay, let's create that. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It, that, that definitely, made, and I love that you brought up the aspect of recording because when I did high school speech and debate for, for a couple of years, um, really my junior and senior year, I started recording every single speech I gave. So I would just put the phone in the corner, I would give my speech, and after the round was over, I would start listening to the speech. Because I just loved hearing myself talk, not because I'm, I, I, I like hearing myself speak, but I really wanted to analyze what do I sound like? Because I know what I sound like, but what did the judge just hear in this debate? And then if I won or lost, I would go back to the, the video recording and see like, were there moments where this triggered the judge to think a certain way and how did that happen? And I think that really helped me become self-aware and self-conscious in my own communication yeah. style. And that's definitely, I, I think, a tip that you would agree with that a lot of public speakers yeah. should do is like record yourself. Don't be afraid to listen to yourself. You have to. Yeah. And most people, a lot of people are scared of self-awareness. And so that's why it's, it's, it's a critical thing. That's why we have, you know, every year when we start the new year, you got goals, you got resolutions, you got Here's all this. Me. Yep. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and people are scared of looking inside of themselves, especially after failure. Okay. That broke, that didn't work. Why? And how can I adjust myself? Because they're, they're scared that, okay, oh my gosh, if I'm looking at myself this way and I'm thinking that sucked and that and I'm critical, what is everybody else thinking? Are they thinking I'm terrible? <laughs> Are they, so, you know, we overcomplicate our, our mental process. We overcomplicate our actions in life. And because we overcomplicate them, we miss the simple things. Right. I 100% agree. Um, and transitioning into that, we talked about how to hook an audience a little bit with like being interactive. Um, yeah. What do you think is the best way to conclude an audience? Do you think the con uh, concluded speech uh, presentation, does the conclusion have to be synonymous with the hook? So like, for example, if you talked about a metaphorical bike in the hook, do you think it's more impactful yeah. to talk about how you that bike comes back up into the conclusion and the metaphors connect with each other, which makes this like aha moment and then it triggers everyone to clap? Or do you think conclusions can be different and interpretive on their own? They can be. I, I love what what you just talked about is what I refer to as a circular framework. So you start out at some place, you kind of take them on this journey and then you end up back at that place or you bring that place back around. So it comes full circle. Right. Okay. I want to steal that term now when I'm coaching people. So yeah. Yeah. I, I love that because it's kind of it, it, it makes it. It's like the thing that you said at the beginning wasn't just out there by itself. 
Right. There was a reason, and you look like a genius because you took this journey and you said, okay, see how all of this connects now? I'm right back here. Right. Thank you, right? This is how I wrapped it up. I wasn't just randomly throwing stuff out there. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is what that was. And so when people are able to see that circle and see that connection, they are like, oh, yeah, I totally get that, okay? But that's not a requirement. You, there, there are a lot of different things that you can use as closing. And you've got to figure out what is the result that you want. Do you want to inspire people? Do you want to mobilize them and drive them to action? How do you do that? Am I going to use a quote from Martin Luther King or am I going to use something inspiring from, from Eric Thomas or Zig Ziglar that will make them think and say, oh yeah, yeah, I can do this, I can do this, okay? Or do I want them to just get some information and know a list of steps and then maybe have a call to action that says, yes, this is the next step that we will take based on the information that we just heard, okay? So it really depends on the result that you want. Do you want them to ask questions? You know, and, and so one of the things that I really share with public speakers or people that I'm coaching is, you know, never leave an interaction without an action, okay? Never leave that conversation without a next step or, or what the next expectation is. And either you've come to an agreement with that person or that group about it, or you've allowed them to create an agreement with themselves by putting a question, by putting a task in the space for them to respond to. Right. That, that's a really good way to put it. And and I, I think going back to, to the circular thing, I think like when I, when I would coach people or I would tell them, or like I coach a fifth grade class on public speaking during the week and I have to try to make things simpler for them. It's so easy to just bring up an analogy, right? You're teaching mm -hmm. something so complex and you're like, well, think of it like this. And then you relate that analogy from the beginning to the end to what you're actually talking about. And then you attach like a value to the metaphor mm -hmm. in relation to what you're actually speaking about. And it just clicks in people's head. And I think that's because throughout the beginning of time, books, novels, movies, songs, they've all been metaphorical and they have similes and analogies that have meant something deeper, which have, yep. has allowed us to kind of like human nature to grasp onto them immediately. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you mentioned just now, it's like this, that is, that is a very great technique in making metaphors and comparisons because you know, you can speak in technical and regular and normal language. Right. But when you're able to take somebody's thought process and create connections right. all the time, if you're always able to create connections for people, it's it's like this puzzle that you're helping them put together. And the, when you can do that, that creates a different level of connection to you as the speaker, as the expert. All right, last two questions, Robert, then I'm going to stop taking any more of your time, get you out of here. Um, uh -huh. First question is just the, the business aspect. What do you see for the future of your coaching consulting business? Are you trying to make it like super big? Are you trying to like compete with all the big multinationals or like are you just happy doing it on your own and growing slowly every day? Man, growth every day is my goal. I don't want I don't ever want to be complacent or stagnant. I always need to be learning something if whatever the monetary amount is. If I set a goal of 10 million for my company and we reach that, okay, how do we get to the next place? Do we need to scale? Do we need to have more people? Do I need to clone myself? So my next goal really is building out my training company right. more so that within the next couple of years, we have, you know, 10 trainers working under us. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That makes sense. Um, and final question, which I ask every yeah. uh, person on the podcast, just because I think it's a nice question to ask is, 
are you happy right now in life? Dude, I'm ecstatic. I'm not just happy. I mean, I and it probably maybe I'm simple. It it doesn't take much to make me happy. I believe my happiness comes because I wake up every morning. Yeah. All right. And I'm like, dude, that's that that is perfect. That means I get to live. That means I get to connect with people. I get to have I get to kiss my wife every day. I get to hug my kids. I get to do that stuff, man. That's a blessing. That's a privilege. I'm happy and I don't take it for granted at all. I've, I've got health. I don't wake up with pain in the morning. I don't wake up and have to take a bunch of medication every morning. And even if I did, I'm still alive. And it's man, I'm just I'm happy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm thrilled. It's gratitude, man. It's gratitude. Yep. It's happy to be here. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, that was Robert Kennedy. I really, really like this podcast. I hope uh, if you are listening to this podcast, you got a lot of value out of it and you take it uh, and you use it for what you need to do in the rest of your life in your public speaking or in your communication skills or aspect of your life. Robert, tell them where they can find you and then we will be out of here. Dude, you can find me everywhere as Robert Kennedy, the number three, robertkennedy3.com is my speaking website. Um, Robert Kennedy three on Instagram, Robert Kennedy three on LinkedIn, Robert Kennedy three on Twitter and Facebook. You can find me in all those places. I try to keep it consistent, bro. Right. <laughs> you're looking for a keynote speaker and you're listening to this podcast, Robert Kennedy com. I think this man can, can inspire some audiences if you're, if you're, if you're out there looking for him. So thank you for hopping on the podcast. Thank you for taking 45 minutes out of your busy life and giving us yeah. some of your value. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys in the next episode of the public speakers. Podcast. Awesome. Amit. Thank you, man. Yep.